The Athletic. So yesterday came the news that Manchester United CEO Richard Arnold will be stepping down to be replaced by Patrick Stewart on an interim basis. Richard Arnold, the Manchester United Football Club CEO, is to leave the club by the end of the year. And with billionaire Sir Jim Radcliffe's company Ineos set to buy a 25% stake in United, does this move represent the start of a change of direction after a difficult 12 months at the club? It's a calamity in Copenhagen for Manchester United. And can United live up to the claim they made to investors that with the right support, they can enjoy billion pound revenues? I'm Ayoake Molere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Changes again at Manchester United. I'm joined by the Athletics, Adam Crafton and Dan Sheldon. Adam, let's start with you on this one. Just explain to us exactly what happened yesterday. Uh, so yesterday, Man United announced that their chief executive, Richard Arnold, had decided to step down. They said he'd be gone by the end of 2023, which is you know obviously pretty soon now. I think the reality at the club is that it's kind of moved a bit faster than that in the sense of he may, I'm sure he may be being paid up to the end of 23 and may officially have that role. But the, the club also announced there's an interim chief executive who is Patrick Stewart, who was the club's chief legal counsel. So he's kind of stepping into that role over the next few weeks. I think the reality at the club already is that Arnold is essentially out. I mean, he attended Sir Bobby Charlton's funeral as chief executive of the club on, on Monday. But I think from now, that role has, has now been passed on, essentially. Yeah, Dan, why do you feel it, it's come so quickly? Well, I think I think if you go back to the end of October, Laurie Whitwell reported that the expectation is that Richard Arnold will leave once once the Union deal goes through now, it, it seems to be a, a matter of kind of when as opposed to, to if Sir Jim Ratcliffe's minority investment gets kind of ratified and goes through. So you can look at it like that and say, well, they've just kind of sped the process up. If you're Richard Arnold, could you perhaps now say, look, I, I've walked instead of being pushed, which is probably a you know more beneficial for him. In, in terms of the investment, it, we're just waiting really now. It's just a case of, you know, everything you hear is that it, it is essentially done. Um, you know, there was a suggestion it could be announced this week. Now that may be unlikely. And then you think, well, surely next week then. You know, I don't think the Richard Arnold thing happens without the Ineos investment. Personally, you can kind of look at Arnold's record over the last few months and think well, you know, it was kind of inevitable that something was going to have to happen. But I would I would probably argue that, you know, the, the investment or the impending investment has, has sped that up a little bit. I think there's truth in that, Dan. I think there is also... I think it's also very true that over the last few months, the relationship between Richard Arnold and Joel Glazer, who is the most active of the Glazer family as kind of chairman of the club and owner of the club, that relationship has, has become frayed. And yes, while it's true that you know they're selling 25% of the club, it doesn't mean it's inevitable that the chief executive has to change, actually. you know, And also, if you look at the way the club is splitting itself potentially with this minority shareholding so that Jim Radcliffe will have control of the football operations. And then you'll also have the commercial side of the club still, in many ways, it looks like being run by the Glazers. Well, Richard Arnold has, you know, he's been at the club for 16 years. He was a commercial director. Probably no one better at the club, really, in terms of understanding Manchester United's commercial direction. So, Yes, I think there is an element of probably Jim Ratcliffe 
may have at some point wanted to have his own man in as CEO. I think there is also, or at least some new hire that would be somewhere between the two ownership groups, almost as, as a mediator. I don't think it's necessarily inevitable without the kind of grinding down of the relationship and how really how difficult Richard Arnold's year has been that Arnold would, would necessarily have had to leave the club. And the thing that kind of reinforces that to me is actually Ineos won't be able to get in for quite a bit of time, even after it's announced next week. You're still going to have this kind of six to eight to 10 week period potentially where regulatory processes have to go through before it can all be fully, fully uh, ratified. And surely it makes sense during that period to have the guy who's been chief executive for the last over a year or so, or 18 months longer, to just sort of be there for stability rather than having an interim CEO before you then have potentially another CEO. I I think that's a a really important point just to pick up on that is, you know, we all expect Ineos and Jim Ratcliffe to, to have control of the football side now, I've never been able to to find an answer as to how that could then lead to them appointing their own chief exec. Because I, I would personally sit back and think, well, you know, instantly when you think football side, right, well, the most obvious replacement would be John Murta, right? I mean, he is the football director. You, I would kind of like, well, Arnold would sit above that and slightly to the left in terms of he's, you know, he, he, he obviously runs the, the club day to day, but the club is more than just kind of, you know, football department, right? They've got huge, as Adam's mentioned, huge commercial department. So I think that certainly does pay into the fact that, uh, as Adam's just mentioned, a kind of fraying of the relationship between Arnold and, and the Glazers because, again, I've, I've just never been able to understand how Ratcliffe could come in and then appoint the CEO. I mean, that's quite a big... Well, it's, it's also just completely... I mean, it could only happen at Manchester United, right? This kind <laughs> of situation. In what other world is a 25% investor get to decide the CEO. I'm sorry, I've not been, you know, I've not been a share, a major shareholder in, you know, multi-billion pound businesses, but that to me seems completely mad. Like why why would that be the the decision of the minority shareholder who who is the, you know, the oper- the operational CEO of the club? To me, that the way it's being sold is, you know, he takes control of the football direction of the club, so that means control to me over player trading, over a club's academy, potentially the club's football infrastructure. You could make an argument there around where does the stadium fall between commercial and football? Where does the training ground fall? Those are those some of those blurred lines. All the stuff that Sir Dave Brailsford's known for, the, you know, the marginal gains, the analysis, the data department, all of that kind of stuff I'd have expected to fall within Jim Ratcliffe's remit. Who the CEO is, to me, feels like at best mutual, and if not, more actually probably should be a Glazer call. But who knows what's been essentially cooked up in those meetings between Joel Glazer and, and Jim Ratcliffe. And maybe if Jim said, look, I want my own man as a CEO, or we're not doing it. I don't know. I'm mean, purely speculating. And Joel Glazer just thought, okay, fine. Well, in terms of Richard Arnold's legacy then at Manchester United, and then we've spoken about him and his name's cropped up over the Greenwood uh, conversation. Uh, what, what is his overall legacy at Manchester United would you say complicated I think I think you know you you have to remember he inherited a really messy situation essentially the guy who came before him Ed Woodward had a slightly different he was executive vice chairman rather than chief executive but essentially the same role and he walked away after the Super League collapsed that was what triggered his 
his departure. From there, you kind of had, uh, and also I think before uh, before Woodward stepped away, one of the last things he had to do was sack Solskjaer, right? I think he he was the one that that actually did that. If I've got my if I've got my timings right, so Arnold had to get a new manager, which he essentially delegated to the football director uh, John Murta. He then had to, uh, and I think the strengths of Arnold were actually his ability to try and empower specialists, right? So if that was well, the the idea of them being specialists at least. So John Murta, in terms of, you know, you go and do the transfers. I'm not interested in, you know, sitting down with big agents and sorting out transfers and all of that kind of thing. On the one hand, you could say that's really good because it means you're empowering the right people to make decisions. On the other hand, you could say, are you getting out of the firing line in case it goes wrong? And should you take on a more hands-on role? Different people will see that differently. You know, ultimately, he backed the call to get Ten Hag in. I think most Manchester United fans just about will feel you know, that's been vindicated despite the start to this season. The relationship, I think, with although protests have continued towards the Glazers, I think in general, the engagement with fan groups have been a lot better. There's been a lot more communication. There's been the setting up of the fans advisory board after the Super League. There was this idea of doing stuff with the stadium, but, you know, Richard Arnold's always made clear to Joel Glazer, like, you have to raise money you have to raise capital in order to do this like can't leave this alone and and then clearly there's been real kind of flashpoints you had the kind of farcical moment where he ends up in a pub conversation with a group of fans in his first summer in charge where at the time Manchester United was struggling to sign Frenkie de Jong and he ends up in this conversation that's recorded ends up going online on the one hand again you could say that just shows he's a normal person talking in the pub to real people other side is it's not the most professional look to be having a few pints and you know disclosing Manchester United's transfer budget. You then had a decent first season for you know decent full season where you bring in um, Ten Hag, you win a trophy, you finish third, you're back in the Champions League, and then it kind of all goes wrong again, right? Because you have the moment where he decides to bring back Mason Greenwood, and then obviously they change their mind about Mason Greenwood. They then have major issues with staff in meetings after that where staff were essentially accusing United, I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially accusing them of, you know, not treating women well at the club. So all of that he he was contending with. And then behind all of that, you've also got the strategic review that's been going on for a year, which, you know, I'm not sure how much sight he's really had of it. And he still has to be the figurehead of the club and answer to over a thousand staff at a time where nobody's really sure what the Glazers are going to do, whether it was going to be Jim Ratcliffe, whether it was going to be Qatar, whether they were going to do anything at all, whether it would be one of those US private equity funds. So I don't think it's been an easy job. And in between all that, I had to get rid of Cristiano Ronaldo. Like this has been a complicated job. I think some of what they've done, particularly around the women's team, has been a lot better as well. You know, brought in Polly Bancroft as their first women's football director. They've got a new facility at Carrington that is like well overdue as well. So Taking it all together, I think pretty difficult job, but probably maybe not the best person to do it. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akinwalere. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com 
slash courtside to learn more. The man stepping into the interim shoes for the time being anyway is uh, Patrick Stewart. And yeah, listeners, I know that name does sound familiar. The world famous actor, Sir Patrick Stewart. But in the drama that is Manchester United, who knows if he's the one taking the helm. But let, let, let's talk about him, um, Dan. I mean, what should listeners know about him? Because from what I've read, he's been in the club for quite a while, hasn't he? Yeah, so he, so he joined in, in 2006, which I think makes him the kind of longest serving of that executive leadership team. I think Arnold joined a year later in 2007. And I think when, when Patrick Stewart arrived at the club, he, he became their in-house lawyer, general counsel, and, you know, from what I was told, built out the legal team, right? I think it was, well, United were one of the first clubs to kind of have this in-house lawyer. So he, he arrived on his own and then has now built out quite a big team. You know, he sits on Premier League working groups, UEFA working group, the FA, like, you know, he liaises with all of those, can often be seen at Premier League shareholder meetings. He is, a you know, an arbitrator at the Court of Arbitration of Sport at CAS. You know, he has his finger on a lot of pies and you know, he's also present at home and away games. He, he travels, you know, with, with the club to, to fixtures, often see him in the director's box. He was described to me in a, in a piece we did that, you know, he's for someone to come in and just kind of handle a short-term sort of process he, he's absolutely fine you know he's he's a lawyer which kind of makes him instantly process driven like they're pretty functional mostly objective he would have been signing off on you know his, his job isn't just kind of as general counsel dealing with this it's you know signing off on commercial deals it could be signing off on player contracts you know, he's had quite a you know key role in the sort of 17 years he's been there and the Glazers obviously feel as though he's more than capable of sort of steadying the ship while this takeover process goes on and coming coming in in a on an inter on an interim basis. So yeah, I mean, obviously United were quite keen to stress that it is only interim. So it'd be a surprise if he's there beyond that that period whilst they find a, a viable replacement. But yeah, I mean, I don't think there would be any kind of concern that he's going to drop the ball or or anything like that. You know, he's been there a long time. He he will know everyone. Will obviously have a relationship with the Glazers. No doubt would have already been dealing with with Team Ineos, I'm sure. You know, I guess if you're looking around a room to someone to fill the gap whilst this is all going on, you probably pick your most experienced exec who's been there the longest. In the long term, do we have a sense of who might potentially take that CEO role, Adam? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of speculation around uh, this guy, Jean-Claude Blanc, who's CEO of the Ineos Sport Division. And... He's worked at PSG for a long time. He worked at uh, Juventus as well in Italy. So, you know, very experienced sports executive, not worked in England. Yeah, you know, I remember being told when he left PSG that the view in Paris was that he was quite keen to kind of have a quieter life on the South Coast. So <laughs> good luck in Manchester. <laughs> good, good, good luck going into, into, the, into the madhouse. That seems to be the candidate at the moment. I mean, Manchester United yesterday were saying that there would be a thorough recruitment search. Again, how that tallies with Jim Ratcliffe coming in and basically bringing in his own CEO is unclear. But, you know, to, I think it is work because I think it has been painted in the media as a bit of an inevitability that this guy gets that job. So I think it's just worth stressing United are saying there will be a proper recruitment search. They're not really making clear what that process looks like, though. I think look, I think at the moment there's a lot of people at Manchester United just kind of very unsure, right, about what's going to happen next and how it's all going to shake out. But yeah, I mean, he seems to be the only person at the moment whose name is being, you know, you know, touted uh, for, for that job. 
Dan, I'm just thinking, well, we've got the January transfer window not far looming. You, you need a little settlement as to who's doing what at Manchester United. Do we have a sense of how that's going to be dealt with coming into this transfer window? Because, you know, financial bits aside, United potentially need a few recruitments coming in. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you know, every club goes into January wanting players, but whether that the finances are there at United for that, I mean, I'm not so sure. I mean, last January, they signed Berghorst on loan, right, which kind of summed up where they are. They spent relatively big in the summer again. So, I mean, I personally wouldn't expect any kind of marquee signings to, to turn up in January. United will say, you know, if you were to ask them about oh, what what's happening about January, they, they, they will say it's business as usual. You know, that will be their their kind of stock phrase. You know, nothing's nothing's going to change until it until it changes and everything goes through with with Ineos and there's a, a structure that that's put in place. So my understanding is that at the moment it it just would be the same, right? It'll be still be John Murta will be working with his team and all of that will be going on. I'm sure as Adam said, you know, even when that Ineos deal goes through, there's still going to be a, you know, a two month, maybe a two month period where it has to go through other checks and balances whether Ineos then start providing... I mean, I'm sure Ineos have already got an idea of what they want to do, right? I mean, they, they've been... I think they put their first bid in in February, so it's been nearly a year that they've been thinking about what they'd be doing at Manchester United. So I'm sure they have a plan. But at the moment, they're not there. So, you know, United will just say it's business as usual, kind of going into the January transfer window. I don't know if Adam would disagree or agree no, with no, that. No, no, I just... I, I mean, again, you know, I think United fans will be concerned about that, right? Like... You know, what does it mean for players in contract negotiations at the moment? What does it mean for, you know, what the club's able to do in January? If if Ratcliffe's able to get in quicker for some reason, does that mean they have some money to spend in January? If they don't, do they have to do sort of a Veghorst Mark II, right? To, because they clearly need a striker of sorts in January. And I'm sure Eric Ten Hag will be asking exactly those questions, right? How do I, you know, I'm under pressure, right? Under real pressure this season. For all manner of reasons, and what is the club? What is the club able to do to support me in January? Now, at the moment, that is really, really unclear. Now, there may be far greater clarity in discussions that they're having behind the scenes, but at the moment, there is next to no communication with supporters, as per usual, on on those issues. And I, I think that's you know that's something which I think you have to hope will come. Yeah, I think I think the Ineos deal should happen next week. And if that if that is the case, you would hope that is accompanied by a kind of a bit of a blaze of publicity. And I'm sure Jim Ratcliffe himself will probably be doing some public facing stuff because he kind of has to sell this to fans, right? As not this is going to be my thing now, rather than this this is a change. This isn't the status quo. This isn't exactly what you've had for the last 15 years. Okay, the Glazers are still here, but this is my baby now, kind of thing. But he has to kind of do that in a way that isn't insulting to his business partners at the same time so it's going to be an interesting thing to just see how they handle the communications around that and the messaging and also I mean that both internally and externally because you know we've we've seen over the last couple of seasons at United there's been times where players have gone to United executives and said you need to get on with it in the transfer market you need to get us the support that we need and you know there's, there's kind of too many players there who are a mature age where they want to be sort of properly competing they can't really afford to be hanging around and waiting for you know United to just constantly be getting their shit together in the in the nicest way so as as a result of that I think all of those questions need 
proper clarity and direction and a sense of purpose at the moment that you know an interim chief who has interim chief executives right <laughs> like you, you know you look at United that it's, it's just so emblematic of what United have been over the past 18 months or so you had the interim manager with Rangnick you had the interim striker with Vekhorst you've had the interim midfielder with Sabitzer you've got another potentially interim midfielder with Amrabat and now you've got an interim chief executive. And it just constant, it just gives this sense of like waiting for the club to sort itself out. And they may finally be getting to that point. But it, you, you need that sense of purpose and direction as, a, as an organisation. I think that's a really important point. There always appears to, you know, United always appear to be in a state of flux. Like you don't really know what, who's coming, who's going. And you know, the whole interim titles allude to that. And I think the, the point Adam just made there about you know, when that Ineos deal goes through, how important communication will be. I think that will be, you know, that's going to be crucial, especially if, you know, if he's coming in and going to run the football department, he really needs to sit down basically on day one and say, well, this is what I'm doing. This is what we're going to do. This is why we're doing it. These people are going to be in these positions doing X, Y, and Z. But also, but also you can't, and this is the flip side of that is, the last thing you kind of want is someone just rushing into an organisation and without taking a look, just kind of ripping it apart yeah, yeah. and making bad decisions. What you kind of hope is that quietly over the past year, I mean, they've had long enough, right, over the past year, probably even longer back than that, if you think about it, to do a proper analysis of what works, what doesn't work, and actually just yeah. therefore be able to be quite cutthroat, but with justification rather than just, I want this guy because I know him, and or I want this guy in because I've worked with him before. Hopefully there's a real sense of what, the club needs because it needs it needs quite a lot you know i mean whatever the plan i think you, you'll probably hear a sort of a firm commitment around a cash injection what's that going towards is that going towards players is that going towards training grounds stadium the kind of numbers that have been spoken about from a stadium point of view just don't just aren't enough are you talking like 250 300 million and i know they're talking about that as an initial investment but like well, what are you doing with that 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 is not enough to do the kind of projects that you know Real Madrid have done with the Bernabeu or, uh, or you know a stadium like Tottenham have built. Like, so those are the kind of questions that really need to be set out. And if it's not going on the stadium, then they need to be pretty clear on on number one focus is spending money wisely in the transfer market to get the team competing and winning on the pitch, and then we'll do the rest of it. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolev. Dan, as your piece that can be read now on the Athletic Today outlines, part of their sales pitch for new investment was the belief that they can hit one billion pounds in revenue by 2027. I mean, that's a bit optimistic, isn't it? Well, I mean, firstly, I think credit credit to Adam. You know, Adam had that detail in in a story in October. And I remember it was about the, the Qataris and what they do next. And when just reading that, I thought, wow, I mean, that, that's quite a bold claim. Is it realistic? I, 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 you know, I think in the piece, I think even the most optimistic kind of person inside United would probably say no. You know, first and foremost, they have to return to success on the pitch. And that means reaching semi-finals, finals of the Champions League, winning the Premier League. You know, they're going to do that over the next four years. Where they are now, it, it looks un- unlikely. You know, it's not impossible, but it looks unlikely. But if a club is to to hit that one billion pound in revenues, you know, it most likely would be Man United simply because of their you know their global fan base. As it was explained to me, right, if, if you're if you're going to sit down and try and entice investors and 
drum up a, a bigger price for the club, you're going to make sort of claims like this, or we think we're going to make a billion. Because that instantly like, you know, wow, that's going to raise your eyebrows. And I mean, there certainly is from you know, the people I spoke to in the piece, you know, there certainly is untapped potential, but it's whether you, you know, that untapped potential has been there for quite a while at United, right? And they've not managed to to kind of maximise that yet. So it's whether you trust the people that are there to do it. That That's what I would maybe have reservations about, you know, and to to get to that point, it really is about, you know, what can you sell to your fan in Japan or, you know, via the app or America? How do you take advantage, make adva- like take advantage of that? And it, and it does, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, they should be doing the, like an, an equivalent of all or nothing, you know, the, the series on Amazon where they should be, have a production company come in and sell that direct to the consumer, right? But that takes massive investment. You can't just you know, that's just not an overnight decision where you have someone turn up with a camera the next day. To kind of make money, they're going to have to invest a lot of money in the development of their app and these ideas. At the moment, with their financial situation, you know, they have their priorities and you just kind of wonder how high up on the list that really is. I think the United's most recent revenue was around 650-odd million pounds. I mean, we saw Man City announce this week, what was it, 712 million we're not going to get into Man City's revenues and, and everything around them because I, I'm not sure that's necessarily actually the best comparison to make with what Manchester United are able to to achieve given you know the amount of sponsors that are linked to to Abu Dhabi in some in some way with with Man City. I think that makes Man United a hard comparison. So you're better comparing with kind of the Real Madrids or Liverpools or Barcelonas or whatever. I, I don't actually think the billion is impossible at all. For United. But what you would say is quite a few of the big TV deals are now locked in for the next few years. Manchester United's deal with Adidas is locked in for the next decade. So that number's not going to go up. It's already a pretty good, you know, deal, billion or so over 10, nine, 10 years. The new shirt sponsor is tied in for the next three years, I think, with Snapdragon. So those huge sources of revenue, TV, shirt sponsor, kit manufacturer, and then you've got this kind of new Champions League format, which will increase some revenues as long as United actually continue to get into it. You have the new FIFA Club World Cup, which will also, I think, be a lot bigger than people necessarily realise at the moment. I think the potential of that is actually quite big. And therefore, if you you know if you ally all of that and the size of Manchester United as a global fan base, and you increase, I won't suggest this. I'll let other people suggest this. Manchester United season ticket prices have been frozen for quite a long time. There was a slight increase with inflation this year. I don't think it's you know impossible that I think you know if it's a team that's winning and creating a better match day experience and investing properly in the club, I think there is a way of raising ticket prices you know marginally in a way that wouldn't necessarily really anger fans in the way that it would do if it was solely the Glazers doing it. I'm sure. There may be fans listening to that who just think that's a disgrace what I've just said, but fair enough. And then you're looking at kind of one of the other ways to make money. You know, one of the things that I'm sure may be, you know, something that Ineos look at. Well, Ineos have been pretty big sponsor of Nice, right? In terms of, you know, the the four by four car, the Grenadier. You could imagine a situation where maybe that becomes a sponsor, but it all has to be in line with the market value of uh, what it is at Manchester United to, to be a sponsor that have to have Premier League approval. But Manchester United are a pretty big draw anyway. So I, I imagine if they wanted to do a sponsorship like that, they'd be able to. Do they do the stadium naming rights? You know, I think that's something they've resisted for such a long time because Old Trafford, heritage, history, like Anfield, you can't imagine it being like the Allianz Anfield or 
Allianz Old Trafford or Ineos Trafford or something like that. But actually, I think if you put it to fans, you know, you could have a better team and a more and a possibility of actually reinvesting in the stadium by doing that. I'm not sure. You know, some people will feel incredibly strongly and say that's something that should never, ever happen. Other people will just think, easy 50 million a year, get on with it. Maybe more, maybe less. It depends how, how that all works out. So I think those are some of the ways it can grow. And then you start winning matches on the pitch and you get to a couple of Champions League semifinals. Then, and actually the biggest thing, which Manchester United have been a disaster at for the past 10 years is, if they sort their player trading out and they actually start doing what proper clubs do, which is buy well and sell well, then you can start actually making money through player trading as well. I think that's a key a key pathway to that billion is the is the player trading element, right? I mean, when was the last time Manchester United really sold a player and made a significant profit? I mean, do you have to go back to Ronaldo? You, I mean, did, I mean, that's I mean, is that how far you have to go back? Well, the no, there's they, there's Dan James. I know Dan James, but I mean, they're making a significant. You know, the, the profit they made on Ronaldo was huge, right? Yeah, I mean, they don't they don't um, do. It. I mean, also like most big clubs are a final destination. That's the thing you have to remember. So, like most big clubs don't see themselves as a club that want to necessarily make huge profit from player sales. Sometimes it happens, right? You might get, you know, Liverpool selling Coutinho or uh, Suarez when he went to Barcelona or something like that. I think what Man City have done quite well is they've managed to retain players' value. So what Man United tend to have is a situation where like players just sort of get contracts extended, extended, extended to the point where like they're, they're almost worth nothing in the market anymore. Like, what's, what are they going to get for Martial? He's going to probably leave on a three at the end of this se- this season after 10 years at the club. It's not, like, that's just not okay. Like, as a way of running a football department, that's a situation like that is able to develop. And we've seen that with loads and loads of players at Man United over the years. Man City, you know, like, Zinchenko was really good for them in terms of the role he had, and then they were still able to sell him and get good money. Gabby Jesus, really good for them, still sold him and got good money. Chelsea, Mason Mount, they're able to sell him and get good money. Man United just haven't done any of that. So that's the kind of stuff that United have to get way better at. But it all becomes far easier if they're actually a competent team that wins th- that wins things rather than a team that's seen as a basket case. And what and what fans don't necessarily like like to hear it, but what City have also done well is maximise their academy, right? I mean, that a lot of their money in terms of pure profit comes from selling academy players. Cole Plama, prime example of that. I think join the academy age eight or nine, sell him to Chelsea for forty two and a half million pounds. Straight away in the books that goes in as forty two and a half million pound profit. I think he played nineteen times. There was that summer where Southampton bought three or four players from Man City that had never got anywhere near the first team and spent a good kind of fifty, sixty million pounds. You know, and no club wants to see or no fan wants to see their their best academy players sold but if United can start producing like five or six really good ones and keep keep hold of one or two but sell the other ones straight I mean that that's just where again something they should be trying to maximize but again it goes back to Adam's point of you know it's the football department that (laughs) need to kind of oversee that change yeah even like some so a player like a player like Brandon Williams right came through had a decent half season there were probably opportunities I imagine there was enough people at the club that would have looked at him and thought, decent player. He's made a bit of an impact. People know who he is now. You know, being part of a team that's been in the Europa League, Premier League, but he's probably never going to be Manchester United's number one left back. So let's sell him when his stock's high. Instead, they give him a big contract 
which means he's very difficult to loan out and get the value back on the wages. And if he has a bad loan, then you then can't get rid of him. And he's actually it's like kind of taken a couple of years for him to sort of sort himself out. And he's now on loan at Ipswich and doing quite well. And they may they may end up getting 10 to 15 million quid for it. But they could have they could have done that two years ago, probably. So those are the sort of ones where he just needs like a bit smarter. And I think there is also with United this kind of a semi-exciting player comes through the academy and they feel like they have to persevere with them forever because that's the Man United way. Like, you know, McTominay is doing okay now, right? But I actually think if he'd have been coming through Man City, they'd have sold him three years ago, right? Because the standard of the first team is higher. He does an okay job in Man United as a squad player, but actually you probably take that money and you reinvest it into a better option. And that's the sort of stuff they have to become smarter. And that's the way that you get those revenues healthier. But also I'm just thinking out loud, and I think it's not just Manchester United, but something that I think a lot of clubs in the Premier League are looking towards now. And it's younger demographics. It's younger people. Like, you know, young people aren't watching football in the same way as they used to back in the day. Manchester United, I feel, is still seeing as this sort of heritage club. I'm, I can imagine, I, I think maybe it's in your piece, someone was saying, you know, people that are paying for football in this country are still 40 plus. That is a huge stream of revenue that could be coming to this club commercially in particular as well. Yeah, I mean, there are still commercial opportunities for United. And one of the people I spoke to in the piece, I think that their research... I think in the US, the average age of a football fan is kind of 16 to 34. Whereas in the UK, they said it's, it's 40 plus who are kind of watching the games. And of course, they'll consume content in, in a different way. But it, it still goes back to, you, know, you can kind of talk about commercial deals as much as you like. And mm. it is a testament to United that they have still signed that big Adidas deal. They've just signed, you know, a Snapdragon. They, they are still clearly a pool because companies are looking at, What's this club's reach? You know, how many people will see this? And, you know, as, as far as the Premier League are concerned, you know, United are the biggest, right? They, they will talk about they've got 1.1 billion followers. So that's what, you know, your, your Adidas are looking at. They think, well, that's 1.1 billion eyes that are going to be looking at the, the, our logo. But fundamentally, it still comes down to success on the pitch. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll speak to someone and they'll say that Adidas deal should have been worth more. If they would have continued that, that run after Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, the expectation is that they would have already hit that one billion pound mark, right? The the front of shirt sponsorship. I think I was talking to someone and it was before Team Viewer. They thought, or United were kind of thinking, or they could get 75 million pounds a year for that. And they ended up on sort of 47 and a half with Team Viewer. So that just it it still it, it just come fundamentally comes down to success on the pitch. You know, and it was described to me in the analogy used in the piece, right? If you think of United as a snake. You've got the head is the kind of football side. The body is the the commercial. Well, 10 years ago, you chopped the head off. And when you chop the head off a snake, the body wriggles around for a little bit, but eventually stops. At what point do United hit that saturation point of their commercial, of these companies willing to... I mean, clearly Adidas have done it and, and Snapdragon are going to do it. So they, maybe they're not at that point yet. I mean, I don't know what Adam thinks, but they, they must be near that point. I mean, it depends how much really brands care about being associated with a winning team or how much they actually care about reach and narrative and drama because the one thing Manchester United will always have is reach and narrative and drama. And for better or worse, I think they would probably rather Man United be winning stuff, but I'm not sure it's enough. You know, let's let's be realistic about, you know, Manchester United's disaster is that they're still in the Champions League. Right, they're still in the Champions League. They still have 
probably the second highest wage bill in the Premier League, maybe third. They're still playing Bayern Munich in the Champions League twice this season. They're still going to be the most televised team. Like, th- there's still a huge amount of traction to gain out of it. I'm sure you know those kind of subscription TV channel, uh, TV streaming platforms would want a Manchester United documentary, right? They'd bite their hands off. I know some of them have tried and failed to do it. Not only this kind of the in-season ones, but you've also had like different ones about the whole history of the club and things like that. So a lot of that kind of stuff, I don't think there is, you know, a real risk of, of that at the moment for United. And also, you know, what there is this promise of like sunnier uplands all of a sudden, right? You've got something that's about to change. And all we need to wait and see is the extent of that change and how real that change is. All right. Let's lend it there. Uh, we'll definitely be talking about Manchester United for the rest of the season. Adam, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, please remember to rate and review the podcast if you're enjoying it. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. To listen to other great athletic football podcasts for free, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. The Athletic Football Podcast is an Athletic Media Company production. The Athletic.